I'll be reading 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12 from the New English Translation. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to keep away from fleshly desires that do battle against the soul and maintain good conduct among the non-Christians so that they now malign you as wrongdoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God when he appears. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. My name is Peter. I'm one of the pastors here. Before I go into the sermon, I want to talk a little bit about Chick. In 2003, I made my first uh, iced coffee, and I figured out that you had to double the portion of grinds so that you can dilute it with ice later on. And uh, it worked out great. It was a hit in um, New York, but what do they know about coffee, right? And then I started experimenting more and getting more and more into it. And, you know, my researching obsessive self uh, kind of put my whole weight behind it. And lo and behold, today, uh, I find myself roasting my own beans. Um, I uh, imported an espresso machine from Italy. And uh, it's like a really rewarding, fun little hobby slash uh, you know, oracle of the Lord in my life. And uh, as part of what I'm contributing to Chick is coffee, uh, freshly roasted coffee. And let me tell you, I'm really into this. Like I get my beans from Africa, from a low altitude uh, region. It's low acidity. It tastes like chocolate. And that's what you want your coffee to taste like by accident, chocolate. If you just buy chocolate and it tastes like chocolate, there's no reward in that. And so uh, I'm offering up six weeks of fresh ground coffee. Um, So come to the Chick Auction and let's stop these announcements already. Let's give them $20,000 and we'll send them off. Their lives will be changed forever and we'll call ourselves church. Yes? All right. So see you all Saturday. That good? All right. Today I want to talk to us about your soul. Um, we are continuing in the series in First Peter, and I want to start with the question, how are you? Now, uh, I immigrated to the United States in 1981 uh, from South Korea, and uh, one of the things that I had to get used to uh, was how Americans seem so much more freer with their words and expressive of their feelings and things. And so one of the weirdest phrases for me uh, back in the 80s was the phrase, I love you. Americans said that to each other. It was interesting, you know, that they would feel things and express it to their kids. Back in Korea, the only time maybe you said I love you was when somebody was dying or, uh, or already dead. You know, maybe you said, I love you, but you don't express that to somebody who is still alive and well. But Americans seem to sort of throw that around. And I think part of it is the Scandinavian culture that uh, we're a part of. And you all in Seattle with the Scandinavian heritage, you know this. I think I've told this joke before, but, you know, the husband, the Scandinavian husband um, says, I love my wife so much I almost told her. (laughs) Have you heard that? Another phrase that was weird to me uh, was the phrase, how are you? People said this all the time. And nobody seemed to acknowledge that this question was being asked because they just asked right back, how are you? 
and just moved on. It was sort of a long version of hello or hi. And sometimes I would say hi to somebody and they would respond to it, fine. How are you? And it, has that ever happened to you? It's just this thing that we say to each other. Uh, but what factors, if we were to try to answer this question, how are you? What would you take into account in determining how you're doing? Uh, I think for me, uh, I think relationships are really important. So if there's relational tension or friction in my life, I just kind of feel, ugh. So I wouldn't feel like I'm doing very well. Or sometimes there's sort of a, um, a dearth of hope in my life. You know, like personally, I'm not really growing. I feel stuck or plateaued. Then maybe I'm not feeling like I'm doing so well. Or maybe it's work. Maybe work isn't so hot these days, and so I'm not doing so well. Maybe uh, financially it's sort of tight or there's been a reversal, so I'm not doing so well. Or my marriage, uh, because, you know, it's her fault again. It's not doing so well. So, you know, maybe, you know. Or maybe there are things I want. I don't have enough things. Or uh, I don't know. How are you? How would you answer that question? I think what the passage today is telling us is that every factor that we might ever consider in trying to understand how we are doing feeds into this one final eternal thing that's called your soul. And uh, even at this level, think about this. If you have everything, if everything external to you is going well, but your soul is not doing well, then nothing is going well. And you can have everything, but you actually feel you have nothing. Or on the flip side, if you have nothing, and really externally nothing is going well, but your soul is well, then you feel you have everything. And so I think on some instinctual level, we know this, that everything feeds into the soul, that everything really is about the soul. And the well-being of the soul is of paramount, essential importance. A word that I want to introduce in this sermon is the word essence. And the definition is the intrinsic nature or indispensable quality of something that determines its character. The essence of your life what determines the character of your life, the indispensable quality of your life that matters first and foremost and final is your soul. And the scriptures teach us that Jesus alone is competent, wise, and loving enough to be the lover of our souls. And all of these external things that we look to to do better to be doing well, actually don't mount to anything if our souls aren't loved in the process. Your soul really is the determinative character, the thing that matters most. A word related to this that I will talk about a little bit later is the word quintessence. You can hear it in there. Quint means five or the fifth and then the essence Right? It's the fifth 
element that really ties everything in life together. Uh, for example, in ancient and medieval philosophy, the, f- uh, the fifth e- uh, essence or element was the thing that everything, everybody was looking for because the four elements that they had figured out were air, fire, earth, and water. But they kept feeling like there's a fifth element that ties all of these four things together, that ties everything in life together. The unifying theory of everything, the quintessence, the fifth element. And I want to suggest to you today what Peter teaches in these verses is that your soul is what ties everything together. Okay? You can't just play the game. You have to coach the player. Have you ever heard that phrase before? I thought of that yesterday on my run. Isn't that a good phrase? You can't just play the game. You got to coach the player. I don't know. I thought it was brilliant. (laughs) And that player is your soul. You can't just keep doing life when your soul is not doing well. Hey, Your soul is well. You are well. So when somebody asks, how are you? Or you're wondering how you're doing. You're really wondering how your soul is doing. How is your soul? Two points today. Uh, First, when you are hated. And second, when you are loved. Let's begin with verse 11. When you are hated. Uh, I want to invite you to uh, underscore in your mind these phrases that I've underlined for us. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to keep away from fleshly desires that do battle against the soul and maintain good conduct among the non-Christians so that though they now malign you as wrongdoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God when he appears. What I want to do is I want to be true to the theme of the letter and the context into which the letter was written. And if you ask theologians, what they'll tell you is the key theme of Peter's letter to these churches that were scattered abroad is the idea of suffering well. That life actually is filled with suffering. Life is the tale of suffering. And our jobs and the main way, the primary way in which the Christian faith finds its practical application is learning how to suffer well. The reason is because you don't need support systems. You don't need to have wisdom and insight and inner strength when you're doing well. When life is going very well and it's easy, you don't need to lean on anything. But life as it is, is filled with suffering. And you need a resource beyond yourself. And so the uh, theme of this letter is suffering well. And uh, suffering well, according to Peter, means one, grace under pressure. And another way to say that is poise and equanimity. And what he says is when you are able to move about with poise and have equanimity in your heart, that is grace under pressure, then it creates an environment around you that causes other people to feel convicted of the wrongs that they are doing towards you. 
And so one of the threads in Peter's letter is, if you want to cause conviction to happen to people around you, your very best strategy is not preaching well, but it's suffering well. And he applies this to all different groups of people in the letter. You can read, we'll get to later on. But that is one of the primary ways that you are helpful, instrumental to God in causing conviction amongst your peers. It's not to be preachy. It's not to say, I told you so. It's not to be self-righteous, but to learn how to suffer well. And one of the ways you do that, you create convic- conviction amongst your peers, is by maintaining a clear conscience. Because the temptation, when you are under constraint, in crises, and under suffering under injustices, is to violate your conscience by doing whatever it takes to right the wrong and for you to survive. There is a way that the slope of our human nature is survival. It's a base reptilian instinct that we have. And we will do anything and everything to survive. And what Peter teaches later on is that groups of people, this is why he begins with as exiles and foreigners. Because the temptation is to uh, quickly embrace an us versus them mentality. You versus me, us versus them is to act in such a way, uh, categorically what he calls maligning. You see, you see uh, people, groups doing this as immigrants. As I mentioned, I am Italians or Christians or women or Jews or the poor or the middle class or the wealthy or sports teams. I can't believe how much hatred there is among sports fans. I saw this growing up in New York City. There's a section called 67 in the Yankee Stadium. I have seen fights break out in Yankee Stadium in Section 67 on purpose. What fans will do if you dare come into Section 67 wearing paraphernalia from another team, they will provoke you till you start throwing your beer at them, and then the guards come and they kick out that other person. This happens over and over again. It's completely legit. It's part of the culture. Why? Because it's us versus them. The word malign, by definition, uh, means willingness to be amoral or commit injustice in the name of personal survival or tribal allegiance. If it is me versus you, if somehow you are causing me to feel threatened, there is a baser instinct in me that kicks in. And survival now is the law of the land, right? And I'm willing to be amoral or commit injustice in the name of personal survival or tribal allegiance. And what Peter is saying is, this is the temptation. When you are being persecuted, your temptation is to malign. And what they are doing to you is to malign. You are sort of a foreign object embedded amongst them. And they will have an immune response towards you. They will attack. They will persecute. They will cause suffering in your life. And your temptation is to cause it right back. And so later on, Peter talks about Jesus who didn't do this in return, even though he was being persecuted, even though he was being caused to suffer. And so Jesus Christ 
as our example, Peter says, you don't malign. It's a really great little word that I had a fun time studying. And then I came across this called the Siegel model. And what sociologists have discovered, what they've now uh, coined, uh, named the Siegel model, is they have found across time, because they can see historical examples of this, and across cultures, this is a universal phenomenon, groups will respond very similarly to stress. No matter what your culture Your reptilian brain kicks in, exaggerated when you're in a group because now you have numbers. And you start acting in a manner that they have come to call defensive structuring. And what that means is uh, you're going to become authoritarian. You're going to become insular, meaning you're protecting yourself from the outside. And you understand that you are on the inside of something that is true and right and legitimate, and everybody else is on the out, right? Um, And you become controlling, even to the detriment of the members of that group. And you start turning up the contrast so that their behavior now isn't just different, it's evil. And your behavior just isn't different, but it's righteous, and it begin to, you begin to rationalize whatever amoral act or injustice you're willing to commit against them. It's you versus them, me versus you. And groups do this all the time. This is normal. You turn on the news and you watch you know, some news story about some horrible atrocities being committed by one group against another. And you ask the question, how can they love their own group so much, be tender towards their own young, and then go out and wreak such havoc against other groups? Well, it's the Seagull model. It's what we do. It's what sports fans do. It's what tribes do. It's what nations do. It's what religious sects do. It's what families will do. It's what individuals will do. Under threat, under duress, our baser instincts will Kick in. I um, went to a, I was one of the nerds in high school, um, and uh, I was part of the AV squad. By the I was also on the gymnastics team, which I had to quit because I failed Spanish. They didn't let you fail a class and stay on a team. Uh, but I went to a high school, graduated from a high school called Stuyvesant High School. It was a specialized high school that we had to take a test to get into. Now, this high school, because it sucked up more of the resources of the city, there was great animosity from uh, parents and students who were not part of this high school. And uh, so total of my uh, four years in high school, for uh, those four years, three incidents I was involved with, with riot police on the scene, like in full riot gear with shields and helmets, because they got word that there was going to be some sort of gang or group violence uh, against our school from neighbor, a neighboring high school that really hated us. And then I remember this one incident. There was a park up the street. This is uh, in the city, in the East Village in Manhattan. We had a park that we all hung out in. And a bunch of us had uh, procured knives and other weapons, and we had hidden them under trash cans and in bushes just in case there was conflict and we had to survive. Now, normally, we would never do this. But when it was us against them, everything was fair in war and love. 
and our baser instincts kicked in, and we fit right into the seagull model. What are you like when you're under threat? And what Peter tells us is we will malign. We are willing to be amoral or commit injustice if we have to. Is there another way? Is there another way to respond to suffering? Is there a better way? Let's go back to the verses again. Let me read it. This time I want you to pay attention to these two words. I urge you as foreigners and exiles to keep away from fleshly desires that do battle against the soul and maintain good conduct among the non-Christians so that though they now malign you as wrongdoers, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God when he appears. I've talked about this word desires before. Uh, It's really worth mentioning here again. This Greek word is... uh, formed by adding two words together. It's the uh, prefix epi, and then the word thumia. The word epi simply means over. The word thumia is a neutral word, which means desire. So this word translated in positive way means to have a strong desire or to greatly desire something. Uh, The uh, negative way this word is more often translated, uh, sometimes it's translated as lust. And in this case, what Peter is saying is when you are disproportionately desiring something, specifically when you are placing infinite desires and expectations on finite things, when you place eternal desires on temporal things, That's why he uh, has the word fleshly. The word fleshly is a Greek word sark, and it just means having to do with uh, the flesh. And the flesh doesn't mean something negative. It just means having to do with the things that are tangible, the things that are sort of you can feel and touch and see. And he's saying when you have fleshly over desires for things that really are eternal, then what that does is it wages battle against your soul. That is, it does violence to your soul. I think what he's saying is that we, all of us, all of us nurse a kind of homelessness deep in our beings. We understand that this world, as much as we build house on it, it's not really our home. And as much as we like to think that we've arrived, actually we're just travelers. And as much as we think we have loves in our life, really we are orphans. And as much as we call this country, really we are immigrants. As much as we think we belong, we are exiles. And as much as we think we're legitimate, we're really just refugees. And we import all of these eternal, deep, longings onto temporal things. Do you recognize that you actually love love more than love? You know what that's like? I've been watching um, The Office recently. I think I mentioned this on Easter Sunday. And uh, just this week, I'm in season seven. I'm almost done. I just have two more after season seven. 
Michael, who is the protagonist in the story, uh, has uh, just propo- is proposing to Holly the love of his life. And the whole office is helping Michael to propose to Holly. They set up all these candles, and they fill up her office space with candles. And then in this beautiful setting, Michael kneels down to propose to Holly. And then Holly kneels down with him, a move I did not see coming And as soon as Holly knelt and they were both kneeling in front of each other, surrounded by candlelight, my face did something funny. It just automatically went, ooh. And I was fighting back tears in my eyes. I don't know what happened. I was not thinking about love. I was not being romantic. I was not longing anything consciously. But deep underneath my conscious, there was a subconscious. There was a soul that loves love. I mean, in real life, I have love. Here's Susie and my kids, and there they are. But, ah, (laughs) loving love is so much more lovely, isn't it? Isn't it great to long and to wish and to pine? You know that steak you had that was so amazing last summer? You can have the exact same steak. It will not be the same. Because now it's the memory of the steak. It's what the steak stood for. You were famished. You had gone on a long hike and it was raining outside. But just as you bit into that steak, there was a ray of sunlight that came in through the windows. And in the memory of a great steak is far greater than an actual steak. Why? Because you have eternal longings. You could eat a thousand steaks with that longing before you and none of those steaks will do the trick. You could have a thousand loves and no one will do the trick for you because really your longings are infinite and eternal. The scriptures tell us this. God has set eternity in our hearts and we are made in God's image in the image of an infinite God. And try as we might, our soul is timeless and ageless and eternal, and none of these finite things can actually satisfy the longings of our hearts. And if we try, we will wage war against our souls, and we will be willing to malign those around us. C.S. Lewis uh, has this great quote. I thought about this quote last night and I kept thinking about it, wondering where it was and where I had heard it. And I forced myself to go to bed and I prayed. I said, God, tomorrow morning at six, you are going to find this quote for me. And I found it. It's so good. I'm going to read it to you. C.S. Lewis says this. This is in Mere Christianity on his section on hope. Okay, listen, because this is so good. And his words are hard to read for me for some reason. I messed up big time in the first service. Here we go. Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not now speaking of what 
of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, but something has evaded us. All of this stuff in our life, our plans, our addictions, our vices, our virtues, all of the relationships in our lives have an over-desire, an epithumia quality, an edge to them. Tell me you know that's true. It resonates as true. That everything you've ever wanted has been laced with an eternal quality. And even as soon as you walk into the very room you've dreamt of, you start coaching yourself for disappointment. How come there are no amens in this church? I don't understand. I thought. (laughs) And this is what Peter calls the war against the soul. And he goes on to teach in following verses that only Jesus is loving and wise and competent enough to be the great lover and his word, shepherd of our souls. No one else, no one else in your life, not even you, is tracking the well-being of your soul the way Jesus does. You cannot want and get enough from life No matter what amoral battle you're willing to wage, no matter how many injustices you're willing, no matter how much you're willing to cheat the system, you're still going to be left disappointed. Because you, my friends, were made by God for God. And there's nothing you can do that can ever change that. And unless you come to terms with this deep truth, your only alternative, according to Peter, is to malign. It's you versus them. I'm going to get what I want, even if I have to get through you to do it. Your soul, um, this word, is where we get the English word psyche from. And it uh, means consciousness or yourself, the essence of who you are. And your soul is the fifth element, the quintessence that gives meaning to everything else. Nothing else in your life actually is anything. At their shining best, it's just arrows pointing to Jesus, the lover of your soul. It explains everything in your life, your longing, the hunger and thirst of your soul for God, for its love, for its father, for its home. Uh, Ravi Zacharias, a very learned man, uh, a worldwide, uh, I think he's kind of a phenomenon. He's an apologist, a theologian, a philosopher, a speaker. And um, he has this wonderful way of tying the soul and God together. I want to read it to you. What's up on the screen is just uh, some of his 
uh, final words, but let me read you the whole quote. It's, it's really well put. But he's smart, so if you're not listening, you're going to have to listen to my explanation afterwards. In 585 BC, a man named Thales correctly predicted a solar eclipse. It was Thales' love for ordered knowledge that gave birth to philosophy. But Thales fervently sought the answer to another question. He knew the world was made of an infinite variety of things, plants, animals, clouds. What, he wondered, was the one basic element that pulled it all together. Thales thought that element must be water. But his students, uh, subsequent to his death, went on to expand the underlying reality to four elements, earth, air, water, and fire. Since then, the quest for the philosopher has been to find unity in diversity, the one thing amongst the many things. This very search has made inroads into our American, uh, into our cultures. For example, the word quintessence literally means the fifth essence. In our culture, every American coin reads e pluribus unum, which means out of the many, one. Did you know that? That every coin in your pocket you've ever held has this saying? Out of our diversity, unity. And the very word university uh, that we call our schools means to find unity in diversity. Did you know that? There is unity and diversity in life because there is unity and diversity in the first cause of our being, that is, the triune God. Before the creation of man or personhood or love uh, or communication, uh, there existed in the one triune God what we call the Holy Trinity. The Trinity gives us a key to understanding unity in diversity, for there is an implicit difference in the persons within the Godhead that does not negate equality of essence. We too have a unity of essential humanity originally made in the image of the triune God. Now, I know nobody here understood the last two sentences, but let me explain to you what he's saying. He's saying, basically, since the dawn of man, since the very beginning of human beings, we have been searching for the one unifying theory that ties everything together. We understand that life is made of infinite things. But deep in our instincts, in our souls, we are looking for the one Thing. And we somehow feel on the outside of this one thing that ties everything together. And so starting with Dallas, who uh, first we have a record of, we have been searching for this one thing. And Ravi goes on to say, the reason this world as we know it consists of many things, but really all of these things tie together in one thing, is because the cause of everything the cause of our being, as it were, was started by a triune God. And he goes on to explain that this triune God is one God, but it exists in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all of these, these three heads are all equally and fully God, yet they are distinct, and together they form one God. That is, it's many in one. 
And we were birthed out of this many in one, what we call community. And so when I am born, my life search is to be united with something. And so I go off and I get married and I long to be one with this person. I want us to have many things in common. I want her to be able to read my mind and understand me and get me. And I want to be unified. I don't want to just be distinct, but I want to be together. I want to be one, but I also want to be my own person. I have this eternal desire in me to be diversity and unity. But then as soon as I'm joined to my human wife, I realize she's not it either. And then I say, oh, maybe it's purpose. Maybe it's work. So I go off and I figure out who I am and I go find myself. And I went to university to do that. And then I realized, oh, it's not really job either because a job is a job is a job is a job. Oh, maybe it's home. Maybe if I get enough money, I can buy my first house. Uh, we just closed on a new house, so we're now we're officially homeowners again. But let me tell you, we weren't jumping and screaming in joy to the closing table because in our uh, 18 years of marriage, it was our 11th closing table. We don't have unrealistic dreams about what home ownership can be. It's just debt and burden to us. But it provides security and roots, and the kids are happy. Now I see it for what it is, but I long to belong to, have a sense of place. Maybe if I belong to this earth, then. But I am on this earth, yet I feel so foreign from it. I'm not on the inside of the earth either. Then where do I belong? How can all of these various pieces in my life be connected to me so that I'm one with the universe, as it were, but I'm my own distinct person. Why do I have this longing? Why do philosophers have this longing? Why is it written in Latin on every single American coin? Why do we have institution called university, which means many in one? Why? Why are physicists and astronomers and biologists looking for the unifying theory of the universe? Why? And Ravi Zacharias says, because Trinity. We started with a community that we call God. Perfectly distinct, perfectly connected, absolute love, absolute unity. And I want to be on the inside of that circle so badly. My friends, the only way according to the Christian gospel is through the life, death, and work of Jesus Christ. He died so that we might actually live. Not we, your physical life only, but your soul might live. It's the only way for you to connect to your maker. There is no other way. Go ahead, try it. You've tried it. How old do you have to be before you realize it's not out there? The symbol here is the symbol that the church uh, uses to describe Trinity. Three in one. One and three simultaneously. And I have in my soul a longing to be at the center of this circle. Don't you? Middle school cafeterias aren't actually anything. It just represents a deep longing to be included, to feel legitimate. And here it is, the Trinity from which we were birthed, from which our souls have come. 
I want to give you four application points, and then we're done. Uh, the first is to acknowledge your longing. Your longing is not for food or for shelter, but it's really the longing of your soul. Uh, I came across Anne Lamont uh, many years ago. Uh, she's kind of a popular Christian author, especially among covenant circles, but uh, most among fringe Christians. So if you pick up her books, there's a little uh, roughness to it, but there's a candor and honesty that is shockingly true. And now uh, she recently wrote this piece. And I want to read you a little quote uh, that's really good. Okay? She says this, I'm going to be 61 years old in 48 hours. Wow. I thought I was only 47. But looking over the paperwork, I see that I was born in 1954. My inside self does not have an age. Anyway, I thought I might take the opportunity to write down every single thing I know as of today. And she lists 16 things. I'm going to read you four of them. Number one, all truth is a paradox. Life is a precious, unfathomably beautiful gift. And it is impossible here on the incarnational side of things. It has been a very bad match for those of us who are born extremely sensitive. It is so hard and weird that we wonder if we are being tricked. And it is filled with heartbreaking sweetness and beauty, floods and babies and acne and Mozart all swirled together. Number four, everyone is screwed up, broken, clingy, and scared. Even the people who seem to have it more or less together, they are much more like you than you would ever believe. So try not to compare your insides to their outsides. Also, you can't save, fix, or rescue any of them or get any of them sober. But radical self-care is quantum and radiates out into the atmosphere like a little fresh air. It is a huge gift to the world. When people respond by saying, well, isn't she full of herself? Smile obliquely like Mona Lisa and make both of you a cup of tea. Number eight, families, hard, hard, hard. No matter how uh, cherished and astonishing they may also be. At family gatherings where you suddenly feel homicidal or suicidal, remember that in half of all cases, it's a miracle that this annoying person even lived. Earth is forgiveness school. You might as well start at the dinner table. That way you can do this work in your comfortable pants. When Blake said that there we are here to learn to endure the beams of love, he knew that your family would be an intimate part of this, even as you want to run screaming for your cute little life. But that you are up to it. You can do it. Cinderella, you will be amazed. Number 14, death. Wow, so hard to bear. And when the few people you cannot live without die, you will never get over these losses, and you are not supposed to. We Christians like to think death is a major change of address. But in any case, the person will live fully again in your heart at some point and make you smile at the most inappropriate times. But their absence will also be a lifelong nightmare of homesickness for you. All truth is a paradox. Grief, friends, time, and tears will heal you. Tears will bathe and baptize and hydrate you and the ground on which you walk. I think that's it, everything I know. It's like driving at night with the headlights on. You can only see a little ways ahead of you, but you can make the whole journey that way. When all is said and done, we're all just walking each other home. Acknowledge that on this side of heaven, on this side of the incarnation, we're filled with longings. 
That's it. Life is longings. Second, consider your soul. Everything else is in service to your soul. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Understand that no matter what is happening in your life, good or bad, surprising or planned, God's focus is not the thing that's happening mainly, but it's the condition of your soul. God is always working on your soul. Everything else is fuzzy and blurry. It may still be there, but it's not the focus. What's crisp and clear to God is the condition of your soul. That's the game for God. That's what he is working on. Finances, loves, struggles, issues, challenges. Through all of that, God is working on your soul. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7 says this, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Always at your soul. That's everything to God. There are those references in case you want that. Third, be alone often. I just finished uh, uh, reading a book. It's about two and a half inches thick. It's a world history book. The title of the book is Confucius, Buddha, Jesus, and Muhammad. And I was shocked at how interesting this book was. And um, uh, the author, there are two authors. The author says, uh, they say this. They say, all of these four figures were amazing people. But here's the one thing that struck them uh, as the most significant about all four of these people. He says this, they all were committed to the solitary life. I want to just stop there. That even if you don't read the Bible, even if you don't pray, even if you don't believe in God, just start by making yourself be alone often. Be committed to this practice. And out of this practice, I believe God will find you. I believe your soul will find God. I don't know if you have a habit of this already, but if you don't, each and every day, somehow make alone time happen. Your soul requires it. Your soul demands it. Rearrange something or two things or three things and make this alone time happen. I'll give you one uh, quick story. I was in New York City last weekend, which is why I wasn't here. My baby sister, who's 14 years younger than me, she just got married. And uh, I did her wedding. And it was kind of a life reunion for me. And I met all these people again that were in my life. And it was so good to connect with these people that I hadn't talked to in a long time. And some of them I had avoided because they reminded me of my past, which I was running from. And here's the insight that I had when I was in New York. And I was flying back. Uh, I had this thought that all my life I've been trying to create a past. Because there was just regret and shame, and just ickiness I felt about certain aspects of my past. And so I so badly wanted to close the lid on some things in the past. 
And therefore, it drove me to always focus on the future, which meant I was never present. And I realized when I was in New York that my life has no past. My life has no future. I just have a life, and it's all connected. That past Peter is also me today. And this was such a deep insight for me. And I got this insight when I was alone. And I really do believe in my heart that God spoke this to me. And it's a, a little glimpse into the work that God is doing in my soul. He's saving my soul. He's sanctifying me. And this kind of work is invaluable to me. It's everything. It's worth everything. And if you're married to me, this kind of work in my life is everything. If I'm your dad, this kind of work is everything. If I'm your friend, if I'm your pastor, you want me to be worked on by God. You want me to have alone time with God so that he can sanctify me. And you need that. And the people in your life need you to do that. And if they complain that you're taking too much time by yourself, smile obliquely like the Mona Lisa and make both of you a cup of tea. Okay? And lastly... Read Sacred Rhythms. This is a great book. If you had to read one book on the state of your spirit and how to grow your spirit, this would be the book I would recommend adjacent to the scriptures. It's a book called Sacred Rhythms that the Covenant Church recommended to me that I've read several times now, written by a woman named Ruth Haley Barton. Just a practical resource in case some of you want to dive a little deeper. I remind us today that you are a soul. You are not just a body. You are not your job. You are not your relationships. You are not what you consume. You are not what you possess. You, the essence of who you are, is your soul. And your soul's longing is for the true and living God, for you to be at the center of this circle. And through the cross of Christ, his spirit resides in you. Would you bow your heads with me? <clears throat> Jesus, you are the shepherd, the overseer, and the lover of our souls. And just as you did on the cross, you said, I commit my spirit into your hands. We commit our soul into your good hands. In Jesus' name, amen.